Please turn your Bibles, <clears throat> excuse me, to Matthew 26. <clears throat> While you're turning there, um, I'd like you to picture yourself on a plain, a field, uh, a valley, and coming at you as a fierce and ugly enemy. <clears throat> and that enemy is in hundreds and hundreds of tanks, hundreds and hundreds of tanks coming at you. And your generals hand out to you straws and napkins or Kleenexes. And your job is to make spitballs and to shoot at these tanks. As these tanks are rumbling, the ground is shaking, and these tanks are coming flying at you. And you're handed straws and spitballs. Is my conviction that that is one of the great dangers of we're in today, right now, and that is, as the culture is darkening around us, the Church of America today is passing out straws and spitballs. We think that if we can get really jazzy, hip, cool music, we think if we can have light shows during church, and I'm telling you this is, this is absolutely true. A friend of mine just started to pastor a church where they had to get all this garbage out of there because the church was taught by experts how to grow a church. We need to have a celebrity pastor who's young, hip, and cool. He's in some hip jeans. He's got an untucked shirt hanging out. He's got his hair done, and he has $1,000 tennis shoes. And he's funny, and he can tell jokes. And if we have enough programs for everybody in the, in the community, we're going to, that's how churches grow. And that is spitballs, and that is uh, straws. And the devil is just laughing. He's just laughing. And while that's happening, society is getting deeper and deeper and deeper and darker, and we are moving toward another dark ages. You've heard of the dark ages? The dark ages come when the church becomes superficial and shallow and superstitious, which it did in the past, and it does not check evil at all. <clears throat> and we're moving into a, dark, a new dark age, and that dark age is going to be violent, violent. Dark ages are always violent, barbaric. You're going to see more shootings in, in, in stores. You're going to see more shootings in places. You're going to see more shootings in amusement parks. We're going to have to be armed going into places if this dark ages continues. Dark ages are perverse, and you're going to see more and more perversion and sexual perversion. And as, you, and as, that, and as that increases, our children are going to be exposed to all kinds of things. The next thing that they're going to add to LG, whatever it is, all of those things, is P, pedophilia. That is going to be accepted. Uh, incest is going to be accepted. And then pretty soon it's coming as nudity. Uh, what right do women have to wear shirts when men can go shirtless? That, that's, all, that's all going to come if this dark ages develops. It's going to be an age where nobody trusts anybody. Nobody keeps their word. It's going to be age of power uh, is in the hands of a few, and they're going to manipulate. That's the dark ages. That's what's happened. And what has brought society out of these dark ages? Every continent has known them. The times have known them. What has brought societies out of these dark ages? And the answer is a massive movement of God's spirit saving people, a revival. That's the only thing that can do it. And how are revivals historically, how do they begin? They begin when people see the dark ages coming and they become desperate and they recognize they have no power to stop it and they gather together and they cry out to God in prayer. They cry out to God in prayer and then God answers that prayer and he begins to save. And that's what we're going to do tonight. And I just want to urge you, 
come to prayer meeting, unless the church gets rid of the spitballs and, the, and, and actually starts taking out the true weaponry that we have, unashamed preaching of the word of God, the sword of the spirit, and prayer, prayer, faithful prayer. And as we do that, that's like bringing out a tactical nuclear weapon against Satan. He, he, all, these, all these big mega church entertainment churches, they, Satan loves that. He loves that stuff. But small little humble churches like ours, where a group of people gather together, dead serious, dead serious to fight against the darkness and begin to pray, Satan trembles at that. So come tonight. Make an actual difference in the world tonight. Come tonight as we pray together. We're going to be studying out of Matthew chapter 26. And, uh, and then we're going to uh, look at 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read all of those passages for us right now. So as we get to them, kind of mark them because we're going to go back and forth from them. <clears throat> Last week, I preached on Gethsemane. I jumped ahead because I knew we were going to have the Lord's table. So if you look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 26, notice what it says. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said... Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you're new to the Bible and you want to follow along, just grab the Pew Bible. And that is what we're looking at is found on page 1,318. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved brethren, I'm sorry, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. <clears throat> you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Now please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11, just the next chapter, starting at verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. 
What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, notice that phrase, by the way, I'm going to refer to that real soon here, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself and not, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if another, anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Let's pray together. Father, help us, we pray, as we seek to grasp and understand your truth and to and understand the richness of this meal that we are about to partake. Bless us now, we pray. Prepare our hearts. Help us. Teach us, we pray, of this wonderful, wonderful ordinance that you have given us. Give us power through the Holy Spirit to know and then to experience your grace through this time. We pray this, Lord Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. <clears throat> Today we're going to be serving the Lord's table. And, uh, and as we do that, we turn to Matthew 26. If you'll turn there, we're going to see that, uh, the, how the Lord instituted this ordinance of the Lord's table. Now, let me just, uh, give you the setting. The setting is, is that uh, Jesus is um, just, um, he's, they're at the Passover meal. They're eating the Passover meal, the Jewish Passover meal. They're in Jerusalem. Now, the Passover meal was a meal that was, that was uh, commemorated to remember the first Passover. And the first Passover, of course, was the time in which they were captive in Egypt and God told them to kill a lamb, take, take its, its blood, put the blood over top of the mantelpiece of your, of your door, and then when the spirit of death comes to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians, it will pass over you and you will be saved and redeemed by that blood. You will eat the lamb and you will eat, a, they ate it a very sparse meal and they ate it quickly because you are going to quickly flee out of Egypt. And so that's what the Passover meal was. It was a remembrance of the redemption that they experienced through Christ. That's what it meant. Now, uh, in, in Jesus' day, the Passover was served only in Jerusalem. I know today you think of Passover, if you know anything, if you know Jewish people or Jewish Passover meals, you'll know that they have the Passover meal in their own homes now and uh, all around the world and such. But in Jesus' day, that was not the case. The Passover was served in Jerusalem. You went to Jerusalem to the temple. You purchased a lamb or you brought a lamb. That lamb was then given to the priest. The priest went into the temple, sacrificed that lamb 
on the altar in worship with God, in the presence of God, as it were. And then that sacrificed lamb that was given as an offering was then uh, given back to you. You took it to a home. And in Jesus' day, you could only eat the Passover meal. Uh, this was the Jewish laws within the city boundaries of Jerusalem in a private home. So then they ate that lamb that had been taken to the temple and then, and then brought back. And that's the night in which Jesus then uh, institutes the Lord's table. Now, we studied last week. I jumped ahead because I wanted to study uh, the Lord's table tonight. today. We jumped ahead to Gethsemane. And so all of the horror of Gethsemane that we looked at last week, remember that. Because that's why I said when it says on the night that he was betrayed, this was hours before Jesus was arrested, hours before in, in, in the day before Jesus was, the night before Jesus was crucified. Jesus knew all of that was coming. He was already troubled in spirit. And yet he instituted, he took the time to institute this ordinance called the Lord's table. And so you can think of this as a dying man's uh, uh, action. It's, it was so important to him that this ordinance be be offered. And so if we look at the text, look at verse 26, and as they were eating, they were eating the Passover meal, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And so the, the bread represents my body here, take and eat that. And then it says this, then he took the cup, and again he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This cup represents the blood that I am about to pour out upon the cross. And this blood is the blood of the new covenant. And its focus, its purpose, as it were, is, is the, 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 the new covenant is for the remission of sins. We're going to look at that here in a few minutes, what that means, the new covenant and the remission of sins. Then Jesus said this in verse 29. But I say to you that I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. This meal is what's called an eschatological meal. Now, that means it points to the end times. It points to the new heavens and new earth. It points to the coming and return of Jesus. And we're to remember it and to repeat it in, in, in anticipation and excitement of his coming and the establishing of the kingdom. And so Jesus said, I am going to eat this meal with you when I come again in my glory and I institute my father's kingdom. The last time we had the Lord's table, Matt led it, and he did an excellent job in opening this idea of the eschatological, the end times focus on it. So you see what Jesus is saying there. I'm going to eat and drink this anew with you. So it's almost like a token and a pledge. I'm coming back. You do this meal, remember it, and then we'll join in this meal together uh, in, as, as we have this. So this is the Lord's table. This is this, this very simple little thing that has been instituted here. Well, what does this mean? Like, what, what, what's, what are we supposed to take from this? How are we supposed to understand this? And such. Well, let's, let's examine that now by looking at these other passages of Scripture. But let's pause for a minute. The Passover meal was a meal. And in one sense, this is a meal. This is called the Lord's Supper. Now, we also recognize and understand, first of all, meals that we have that have commemorative remembrances and things like that attached to it. Think of Thanksgiving. We're soon to have Thanksgiving here in our culture. Thanksgiving is a meal. 
We traditionally have turkey and we have certain foods that are, that are associated with that meal. And that meal was instituted by uh, the President of the United States, actually, to, to remember and to give thanks for all the blessings that God has done and in celebration of his blessings. The original one was the original of, of founders who had come to this country and they were thankful that God had provided for them. And so that meal has definite meaning, definite purpose, thanksgiving. And if you get invited to somebody's house to, to, to join Thanksgiving dinner with them, there's something very special about that. And Thanksgiving is to be a celebration of thanks. Think of Fourth of July. Fourth of July. We have Fourth of July picnics. And we, we, we celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence. We, we celebrate the country. And so there's, here's a meal. And here's people gathering. And here's, here's people celebrating and, and focusing on something bigger than just hot dogs and hamburgers. Think of somebody's birthday. Birthdays. At birthdays, we have birthday dinners. You know, um, in some homes, it's it's the tradition that it's your birthday. You, we can have you can have anything you want for dinner. What do you want for dinner? And 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 the, they'll make a birthday dinner, or or they'll just have hey, we're having a birthday dinner. To, you come and we're going to celebrate so and so's birthday. You have dinner, and then of course you have a cake. And the cake has a symbolic meaning in one sense in that there's usually, uh, especially if you're young, there's, there's the exact amount of candles for how old you are. And, uh, and so if you have 12 candles on there, you're 12 years old, that, that sort of symbolizes that. And you're celebrating the person's birth, you're celebrating their birthday, you're celebrating who they are. It's an honor uh, to them. You're, 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 in a sense, it's even a privilege to be invited once again. Hey, come, we're going to celebrate so-and-so's birthday. You're important friend of his come when we want you to be a part of that and so that's what these meals are we're used to this kind of thing and so clearly one of the things that the lord's table is about is it's about remembrance it's about remembrance look with me to first corinthians chapter 11 for instance first corinthians chapter 11 one of the passages that we looked at we read and notice in verse 24 Paul says this, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take it, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a meal of remembrance. We have Memorial Day picnics sometimes, and Memorial Day is a day in which we remember those who gave their life so that we could have freedom. That's a remembrance meal. And this is this, is this idea, uh, verse 25, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So what are we supposed to be doing? actively doing when the bread and when the cup is placed in our hands. When the bread is placed in your hands, part of what we need to be doing at that point is remembering. Remembering Jesus' body. This is my body that was broken for you. Remembering the cross. Remembering the nails. Remembering the, the, the suffering and the torment and the agony and the torn flesh and the willingness to sacrifice his body give himself for us, endure pain, endure suffering, endure all of that, and offer himself up as a sacrifice for our sin, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His body, he gave his body for us. We're so protective of our body. We're so protective. We're so afraid to get it injured. We so want to, want to, want to keep it from, from any bodily injury or pain. 
We, we, we want to guard ourselves from germs. We want to, we want, we're, we're so instinctively protective. And he gave his body. He freely gave his body till he, he, was, he was beaten beyond recognition. He was in great pain. He's bleeding profusely. He's nailed to the cross. And he just willingly laid down his life and did that. And we're going to see that as we go through the book of Matthew. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is laying down his life. Jesus is giving. He doesn't even try to defend himself. He gave his body for you. And so when you're holding the bread, all of that memory is to be coming back into your head. All of that time of remembering, this is, this is his body, what his body meant, what it was, and, 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 and such. And again, the cup. In the same manner, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood. Now, the new covenant is, first of all, a covenant. And covenants are sealed by something. They're sealed by something. If somebody makes, and a covenant is, is just an agreement or a, par, a, 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 a promise or something like that, and somebody makes a covenant with you, they, they say you're going to buy something from them, and, and, uh, and, they, and you say, yes, I'll, I'll take that, and you talk about price, yes, I'll take it at that price, and then you may shake hands at that point. You may shake hands, and that is actually a covenant sign and a seal that that thing has been sealed. Or, or you may buy something from somebody, and now, in, in, in a, say you buy a vehicle, there, there's a title. And then you, you sign, he signs off the title, you sign the title, and then you have that title. That's the seal of the covenant. The covenant was legally made and bound, and this is it. This is it. I got it. They hand you the title. It's yours. It's yours. Drive it away. It's yours. Nobody can stop you legally. It's yours because you have that title. When husbands, when men and women stand before God and before an audience and they exchange vows, then after they make promises to one another, the covenant, they seal that covenant with a ring and they place a ring upon the finger. And that ring is the seal of the covenant. And when in the Old Testament, the covenant was sealed by the blood of a lamb. By the blood of, of, of goats and lambs and, and that seal, that was the sealing of the covenant. And when they painted the, 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 the blood over that, the old covenant was established in that sense. At, at, at one point, he has a bowl full of blood and he's sprinkling it upon the people. And he says, this is the sign of the covenant. Blood was the seal. They were signed in blood. And Jesus is saying that this is the new covenant in my blood. I sealed this covenant. I signed this covenant. I verified this covenant. I certified this covenant. I made this covenant real and this covenant forever and this covenant permanent by signing it with my blood, by pouring out my blood. And now this cup represents all of the blessings, all of the covenant blessings that have come to you by my blood. And you're to be remembering this, remembering this. And the great blessings of the new covenant and the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. Read the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. The book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews is talking about the superiority of the new covenant, of the new covenant over the old covenant, how absolutely superior it was. And 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 or read 1 Corinthians 3 or 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul talks about the old covenant is the covenant on, written on stone. The old covenant is a covenant of condemnation. The old covenant is a covenant in that sense. The new covenant is a covenant where we are promised that our sins are forgiven. In Jeremiah 31, when it talks about the new covenant, I don't have this on the screen, so don't panic back there, guys. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's the new covenant. And we're reminding ourselves. 
We're reminding ourselves with the cup that the covenant has been sealed. The covenant has been established. The covenant is ours. And this is our way. And so the bread and the cup is to stir us up to remembrance, to stir us up to remind us, to have us once again get back and focused on the cross and on the blood and on the covenant and on Jesus' body and who he is. And that's why all around the world, all around the world, in, in African villages and in urban areas in South America and, and, in, and in villages in, in Asia and all around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ are remembering the blood, remembering the body, remembering our Lord. And this is why this is a powerful, powerful ordinance of remembrance. But it's more than that. It's more than that. So if a key word here is remembrance, the second key word is participation. Participation. Think about that word, participation. Let me put it to you this way. This is not a funeral dinner. This is not a funeral dinner. We have funeral dinners here. It's one of the ministries of this church. We have funeral dinners. Somebody has a funeral, the family is gathering, they're mourning, they're sad, they're, 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 and so we, we, we serve a meal back there. That's a funeral dinner. What's a funeral dinner? A funeral dinner is... The living continue to go on and encourage one another, you want to maybe talk about, and, and the dead is gone. This is not a funeral dinner. This is way more than that, okay? What is this? Well, we're going to, you'll start to get a grasp of that if you turn to 1 Corinthians 10. There is a vertical and a horizontal aspect to this meal. Now, kids, I know that those are two big words, and so I wanted to explain what they are to you. Vertical and horizontal. Let me go back. Horizontal and vertical. Horizontal literally means you see this pen? See this pen? This pen can go up and down, and this pen can go sideways. When this pen is sideways, that's horizontal, okay? You can think of horizontal if you think of the horizon where the sun comes up or the sun sets. That's the horizon. That's where the word actually comes from. And that's this way. The horizon is this way. That's horizontal. And when we say that there's a horizontal aspect to, the, to, to something in the Bible, what we mean by that is, is that has to do with us the people beside you, horizontally. If you look horizontally right now, all around you, there's going to be people in the pew next to you. There's going to be people in front of you. There's going to be people behind you. That's the horizontal. There's a horizontal aspect to this meal. But then this is vertical. If this is horizontal, this is called vertical. And vertical is up and down. And so there's also a vertical dimension to this meal. That's between us and Christ, us and Christ. There's a vertical dimension. And so we're going to look at this right now, and Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 10. Look at 1 Corinthians. Now, in 1 Corinthians 10, Corinth was just a, a wicked place to live. It was full of idolatry, perversion. This was one of the dark ages, certainly one of the dark ages when the gospel light came. It was full of perversion. It was full of darkness. It was full of all kinds of, of wicked idolatry. And they had all these temples, and there was all kinds of weird sexual practices associated with that it was weird we think we were weird they were weird too and uh and and christians were, were being drawn to this and paul's trying to keep them out of this don't don't go to these idol temples don't don't go and participate in that so notice what he says in verse 14 of chapter 10 therefore my beloved flee from idolatry i speak as to wise men judge for yourselves what i say then he says this verse 16 the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not communion with the body of Christ? What in the world does that mean? Okay, verse 16. Well, first of all, we get a little bit hung up by the word bless. 
you ever find the word blessed to be confusing? Like the word blessed, what does that mean? We bless God, God blesses us. We, they sneeze, we bless them. What does the word bless mean? Well, the answer is, is that the word bless means all of those things. It's a, very, it's a very broad word. What the word means is the word literally means a good word, a good word to speak well, to speak well. And so the word is used when of bless. When we bless God, when the Bible talks about we blessing God, that's not us in, in, in giving a blessing to God. That is us praising God and worshiping God and glorifying God and thanking God. And that's what the word means here, by the way. The cup of blessing, the cup of, some of your Bibles actually translate this, the cup of thanksgiving. It's, it's blessing. So when we bless God, we're worshiping and praising praising God. We're giving a good word to God. God, you are great. You are good. That's what, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. That's what that means. Praise God. Now, when the Bible talks about God blessing us, that's not God praising us. That is God doing good things to us. And the blessings, the individual blessings, are the actual good things he's doing to us. So God blesses us by giving us the blessings of food. God blesses us by giving the blessings of health. Or God blesses us by giving the blessings of salvation. So we bless, then we bless God by praising him and thanking him as God has blessed us. And even there's an element of blessing one another. And in the Old Testament, in, in the scriptures, when you have people blessing one another, they're, they're, they're basically expressing their desire that God would bless them. May God bless you and keep you. May peace and grace be upon you. They're, they're, they're expressing a desire that you would be blessed. So I hope that helps you. You can actually see this worked out in a passage like 1 Corinthians 1.3 where it says this. Several of the meanings are used here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's us blessing and praising God who has blessed us there's God blessing us not praising us giving us good things with every spiritual blessing there's the actual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus God gives us these spiritual blessings he blesses us he pours out his goodness upon him and we bless and praise him so if you go back to 1 Corinthians uh, uh, verse uh, 16 the cup of blessing the cup of thanksgiving the cup of, 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 of what God has given us he says this, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not communion of the body of Christ? Now, what's this word communion? Well, this is the Greek word koinonia, koinonia. It used to be a very popular word in the 60s and 70s. Churches were actually called the koinonia church or koinonia fellowship. And koinonia means this. It comes from the word common, to hold things in common, okay? Koinonia means... Um, Here's some of the definitions. It can mean fellowship. It can mean an association. It can mean community. That's where the idea of communion comes in here. It can mean participation. It can mean partnership. It can mean sharing. That's what koinonia means. It means, it means people doing things together and sharing things. So two people in a canoe. One's in the front, one's in the back, and they're going through some rapids, okay? And they're both in the canoe together, and they're working hard, and the person in the front is saying, Stop, rock, 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 here go. And so you're both turning, you're both turning, you're both. And the person in the back is primarily doing the, doing the, the, the navigating. The person in front is just helping them out and says, and the person in the back might say, hey, we're getting pushed. To, go left, go left, go left, this and that. What are they doing? They're, they're, that's koinonia. 
That's koinonia. There's fellowship. Two fellows in the same ship in that sense. They're, 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 they're doing an activity together in, 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 in that kind of communion. Okay? That's what koinonia is. Two people starting a business. Two people starting a business, working hard, planning, doing this, doing that. Each of them has a certain role, but it's a business together. That's koinonia. That actually was a common way the word was used in the in New Testament era, the koinonia. And so what koinonia does is it's people sharing in a close tie and participating with one another. And now you can see that's where the, the horizontal element of the Lord's table comes in. The horizontal element. Notice verse 16. For the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not koinonia, fellowship, communion of the blood of Christ, and the bread which we break, is it not koinonia of the body of Christ? Now, in the next verse, he brings out the horizontal element. He says this. For we, though many, are one bread. A better translation there would be loaf. We are one loaf and one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Now, notice here the horizontal element. First of all, the loaf of bread that we use for communion symbolizes that unity and union that we have as the body of Christ. We are one body. We are one loaf. And we partake of that one loaf. I was in a church where when I did the Lord's table, I, I said, uh, this, this is the body of Christ broken for you, and I broke it. And then I put one half of the loaf over here and one half of the loaf over here. And when that was t taken out, it, people took individual snatches out of that, out of that uh, loaf of bread. And that was a powerful symbol that we are all eating out of one loaf of bread and we are one people. And that's what Paul is saying here. Even this idea, look at the word partake. That also has this connotation of, of participating together with each other. We are partaking of one loaf. And this is why Paul is so angry with the Corinthian church. See, what was the Corinthian church doing? Well, look at chapter 11 and verse 17. He says, I can't praise you in any of these things. And then he says, verse 18, you come together as a church and I hear that there are divisions among you. You're eating the Lord's table supposedly with one loaf, but you're all divided up. Verse 19, there's factions among you. Verse 20, therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's supper. You call it that, but it's not that. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is drunk, uh, hungry, and another is drunk. What? What are you doing? That is not being unified body of believers. And that's what he talks about when he says you're not properly discerning the body of Christ. And that's why if you drop down to verse 33, he says, Therefore, brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. And that's why he tells them that they are actually being judged. Look at verse 29. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment on himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You guys are all divided and you're eating each other. Some of you are getting drunk and, and some people are sitting there starving and, and, and this is a chaos. And then he says this. Many of you are sick. Many of you are weak. And many of you have sleep. And that's not meaning taking naps. They're dead because they did not understand that they are the body of Christ. And so, dear friends, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, that's why we partake it together. That's why we share. That's why we pass these things out. That's why we eat together and we drink together. It's part of it is, is as you're experiencing the supper, you need to be understanding. We need to be conscious of one another amongst ourselves. That's why we need to be united. That's why we need to be right with each other. That's why we need to love each other. 
That's why when we have a broken relationship with somebody here, we shouldn't take communion. We should go and ask that person to forgive us if we've sinned against them and such. That's what it means to have a horizontal relationship. Now, what about the vertical? Well, again, go back to 1 Corinthians 10, and notice what Paul says. He tells them to flee from idolatry. And then he talks about this cup of koinonia with the body and blood of Christ, this communion with the body and blood of Christ. And then he says this in verse 18. He says, observe Israel after the flesh. For are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Those who eat of the flesh have sort of a partaking, almost koinonia relationship with the altar. What does that mean? Well, what he's saying is this. When Israel takes their lambs to the altar, and there in the temple of God, in the presence of God, sacrifice that lamb as an act of worship and praise and adoration to God, and then take that sacred lamb that has been blessed, as it were, by being at the altar, takes it home and eats it with their family, there's a sense that they are also communing with and in fellowship with, and God is very much a part. There is a vertical dimension to their Passover meals. Then he does something masterful because he doesn't want these people going in to pagan altars and pagan meals and pagan sacrifices. Notice what he says next. He says, what am I saying then? Because he's told them to flee from idolatry. Don't go in and eat those meals. He says, what am I saying then, verse 19? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? In other words, you, know, you all know where I'm going, Paul's saying to the Corinthians. I'm going to the fact that you shouldn't be in those pagan worship services and you shouldn't be eating those sacrifices. And they're saying, yeah, but wait a minute, Paul, you already told us those, those idols are just stone and wood and you can knock them over and termites can eat them and they're no real gods. He says, yeah, I agree with you. That's true. But something else is going on there. There is a vertical aspect to pagan worship. And that is what he says. Verse 20, rather the things which the Gentiles sacrifice... They sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have koinonia with demons. When you are in a pagan temple, yes, that thing is stone, that thing is nothing, that thing is not real, but behind that is a spiritual reality, and that spiritual reality is demonic. And when you were in that temple worshiping, and you were in that temple eating, and you were in that temple fellowshipping with the other pagans, which you shouldn't be doing, there's also a vertical element, and that vertical element, in a sense, actually, in our, in our terminology, doesn't go up, it goes down to hell. That vertical element is that you are communing and fellowshipping with demons. There's a vertical element to their meal as well, to their meal as well. And he then says this, verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. So you have an, a vertical element here. This is the cup of the Lord. It's called the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. If you do that, you're having vertical fellowship with mortal enemies. You're going to have vertical fellowship with demons, and now you're going to have vertical fellowship with the Lord. What's he saying here about the Lord's table? Something very vertical and very real. The presence of Christ is very real in that sense. So real that look at verse 22. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? God becomes jealous when we eat his celebratory remembrance meal, fellowshipping with him, 
And then we go and have a celebration uh, remembrance meal with demons. Or are you stronger than he? You see, dear friends, listen. This is built on a theology. And that theology is this. That theology is the presence of Christ with his people when they gather together. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20, it says this. For there are two, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. The Lord Jesus promises he is there in the midst of them. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You're there in 1 Corinthians. Look at chapter 5. This is in the context of church discipline. They're actually bringing a, a man for church discipline. He was sleeping with his father's wife. He was sleeping with a woman and, and such, and, and he was parading it in the church. And Paul says this. Paul wants them to gather together as a church and deal with this. And notice what he says. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, in that meeting where you have gathered together to discipline this person, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ himself is present. Look at chapter 14 and verse 25. When the church is gathered, the church is worshiping, the spirit is present, and unbelievers are there. And they're hearing the word preached. They're hearing the word being brought forth. Paul uses that phrase prophecy, but that's what he's actually referring to. He says in verse 24, but if all prophesy and the unbeliever or the un uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. The real presence of God is present in the midst of his people. And that's why Paul says, you guys are really screwing up the Lord's table there by not taking care of your horizontal relationships in such a way. And now you're going into pagan worship and you're involved with the demon worship. And then Paul sort of summarizes this by saying this in chapter 11 and verse 29. He says, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, and here's the word that scares me, not weak, not sick, and not sleep, which means dead. It's the word many. For this reason, many are weak among you and sick among you, and many sleep. Many have been put to death by God. God is disciplining and judging your church. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. If we would straighten up and come to understand the solemnity and the, and the glory and mystery and wonder of this thing and treat it as special as it should be treated, we won't be judged by God. Dear friends, this is not a funeral dinner. The risen Christ is present. The risen Christ is present. Not physically, not when we eat. the. That's, that's Catholic superstition. Not when we eat. the. It doesn't miraculously become the body of Jesus. And then we got to watch out and make sure no crumbs drop so mice don't eat Jesus. That's Catholic superstition. That is not what this is. What it is, though, is con, it's koinonia with Jesus. Jesus is present. We're remembering. It's a covenant sign. It's an eschatological sign. It's a horizontal develop, dimension. There's a vertical dimension. And we are entering into the presence of Christ. Christ has come into his presence. He has invited us to his table. He has invited us to a supper. And we are with our brothers and sisters. And we are celebrating. And we have been honored to be here. So let me apply this very quickly in two ways to us. Because I know our time is gone. I don't know what happened today, but our time is gone. But anyway, listen, listen very carefully. The Lord's table is a tangible token of love a tangible token of love. 
I'm a grandpa, and I feel like grandpas have a unique calling in this world. We really only have one calling in this world. And that is, this is my, this is my view of grandpahood. That is to make that grandchild feel absolutely loved. Spoil them, give them stuff, give them candy, do everything. Yeah, you're at grandpa's house, certainly you can watch TV until midnight. You're at grandpa's house, yes, we don't have to eat your broccoli, eat some chocolate. You're at grandpa's house. You know you're special, you know you're wonderful, you're the most wonderful person in the world. I can't believe, I'm so happy to see you. You're the most beautiful thing in the world. You're the handsomest guy I've ever seen. I love you, I love you, I love you. That's what grandpas do. And love, the power of love, the power of love is healing and powerful in a person's life. And, what, and then grandpas do this tangibly. Come over here and give me a hug. Oh, you want some chocolate? Here's some chocolate. Hey, look what I bought you. Let's go out and get ice cream. I know you haven't eaten yet. Don't tell mom. Let's go get ice cream. These are all tangible aspects of love. Let's go. I want to have dinner with you. I want to I spend some time with you. Dear friends, that's what this meal is. This is a simple, powerful, profound, tangible way. A piece of bread is put in your hand. A cup of wine is put in your hand. And this is Jesus' way of saying, remember me, remember me, I died for you. Remember me, I love you. Remember me, I went to the cross for you. Remember me, I shed my blood for you. Remember me, this is a tangible form of love. Ch uh, uh, Sinclair Ferguson preached on the Lord's table and did this powerful thing. He said, baptism is when you get your wedding ring. Baptism is your initial initiation into this relationship. But he then drew this out in terms of marriages between couples. He said, the Lord's Supper is like a kiss. It's like a kiss. He said, couples after, after the wedding and the wedding ring and all that, the couples for the rest of their life, they kiss. So unsanitary. They put their lips against their other spouses, the spouse's lips. But they kiss. They kiss. That tells them that they, they, you're special. You're special. It's, a, it's that momentary coming together when you kiss that your loved one. You just head out the door. You kiss them. Uh, you kiss them and you show them. And he said, this is a kiss. This is the Lord Jesus kissing us in that sense, telling us, I love you. You're mine. I've purchased you. Come, let's eat and drink. Come. And we actually take the bread and we take it and we eat it. We drink. We drink. It's a meal. And the Lord Jesus says, you're in union with me. You're in fellowship with me. We're eating together. We're fellowshipping together. I wanted to remind you that I loved you and I died for you. And it also is, I want you to feel honored that you're at this table because you are in the new covenant. That's why I've given you this, reminding you very tangibly. It's like a handshake. It's like a hug. It's like grandpa hugging you and saying you're the most special thing in the world. That's what this is. And it's also a tangible way to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our assurance. It's a means of grace. It's a seal. It's a title. It's a ring in that sense. You're mine. I'm yours. And so, believers, I urge you, come boldly. Come by the grace of God. Come through the blood of Christ. Take this all in. Take this all in. And be ministered to by this Lord's table. If you're not a believer in Christ or you're not sure you should be here, there's a biblical pattern that you need to follow. In Acts chapter 2, we're given that biblical pattern. It says this, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. They were baptized. It says, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They joined the church. And then they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And then they they partook of the Lord's table. The Lord wants you to have fellowship with him. 
But the Lord has said there is a way that this is supposed to take place. You believe and embrace my son through the gospel. You identify yourself as his publicly through baptism. You commit yourself to a local body of believers. And then you come and enjoy the meal with me. Don't come on your own terms. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to partake of this meal. I, I want to urge you don't do that. In fact, I want to urge you in your life, this will, this will save your soul. Never come to God on your terms. Always come to God on his terms. Because he's God and you're not. And you can only come to God as God gives you permission to come. And if you come to God in ways that God has not given you permission to come, then you risk your very soul and life. And so God wants you to come to him. He wants you to come to his son. He wants you to be baptized. He wants you to be added to the church. He wants you to partake of this meal and have horizontal and vertical fellowship. But don't come until you're ready to come on his terms. So we are going to now gather together I'm not going to say anything more. We're going to simply go to this meal and partake of this meal. Let's prepare our hearts by singing this very special hymn. And while that hymn is being sung, prepare your hearts and we will go to this meal. Let's stand together as we sing.